Hello and welcome to Coinstruct, the podcast where we look at the world of finance and cryptocurrency from a more human perspective. On today's show, I am joined by George Harrop. He's a bit of a DeFi guy, crypto OG. He's been around in the space for a long time. For the past 10 years, he's been mining Bitcoin, writing theses, writing books, blog posts, creating many projects, and generally just DeFiing. However, today, George joins me as a key member of Step Finance. Step Finance is billed as the front page of Solana. They're currently building a growing ecosystem of products and services that essentially allows you to aggregate everything into one beautiful platform. With Step Finance's recent token launch and the incredible growth that Solana itself is seeing these months, George and the team are very excited and I am very excited to have him on this show. As always, we will talk many things in this podcast, but none of them should be considered as financial advice. Thank you. Okay, well, hello, George, and welcome to the podcast. I appreciate you coming on. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. Um, so I thought the best thing to do would be to start off with an introduction about uh, who you are and kind of what you've been up to in the space. Um, you are currently managing a project, but I'd actually like to ask you about what you've been up to before this current project. Sure. Yeah, yeah. I guess I can start with my crypto journey. Um, <laughs> yes. It's been, almost, <laughs> it's been almost a decade. Well, no, it has been more than a decade now um, that I've been glued to cryptocurrencies every single day of my life. Um, so, yeah, I, I got into crypto probably uh, early 2011 um, and I uh, was mining Bitcoin. I was a student at the time, uh, just sort of building a mining rig in my in my room that was also a heater. Um, so, uh, yeah, well, it's a heater, which makes money, right? Which is the best kind of heater. That so, is the best um, kind of heater. <laughs> so yeah, I used to buy like graphics cards off eBay and, um, and then, yeah, just set them up and like daisy chain the PCIe slots and stuff. So, um, yeah, it was, it was good times. And, and back then there was only like one exchange. There was one website called Bitcoin.org and that exchange, which some of your viewers might know was called Mount Gox. Uh, in Japan, and you had to wire money to a Japanese bank there uh, in order to, which was like a former trading card game website. So like back then, like crypto was nowhere near what it is today, right? So it was just uh, some some weird niche thing on the internet, um, which a couple of people were into. So no, it was good times. Um, and I didn't know anything about finance. So I sort of taught myself everything just through, yeah, just learning about Bitcoin, being on the forums there, uh, mining. Uh, I was one of the first um, FPGA uh, miners. I was one of the first ASIC miners. So I was about 1% of the network at some stage. Wow. Um, so, uh, yeah, no, that was that was pretty cool. Um, people might know Butterfly Labs, who are kind of infamous, but um, uh, they were one of the first manufacturers of miners. So I flew out to America Um and uh, had to go and see that this thing was real and legit and they had my minor and stuff. I took out a loan in Australia, which I couldn't afford because I was a student at the time, but I just got the max, whatever the bank would give me at some insane rate, like 20%, but who cares? Because I thought, hey, I'm going to buy this miner uh, from this Butterfly Labs company. It's going to be great. Um, it was delayed six months, but eventually it arrived um, and it worked out okay. So, And this was, all, this was all circa 2010, right? 2011, 2012. <clears throat> this was, yeah, 2011 till, say, 2013, I would say, in, in all that time period. Um, so, yeah, just sort of delving into mining, getting stuck into mm -hmm. 
into these things. But eventually, like, uh, I made a bit of money on mining and uh, in 2014 I decided to to leave Australia, go to Hong Kong and start a company with my co-founder there. Um, we were focused on Bitcoin remittances at the time, first in the world to do that. Um, we also started one of Asia's, well, the second or third, well, I think it was third exchange. Um, it was the first with a multi-sig wallet for customer funds. Um, but yeah, we started an exchange and back then, like now everyone's an exchange, right? But back then there was like four, <laughs> you know, there was a couple of exchanges around the world. So that was about it. And I assume um, there was no so, like yeah. Gnosis, multi-sig or anything, no third party service for these kinds of things. It was all very rudimentary at this point. No, well, yeah. I mean, so later on in the piece, we we were the first integration for BitGo. Um, BitGo, their big call to fame back then was that they were a multi-sig for exchanges, um, so we we're like, yeah, cool. But that sort of came maybe, let's say, 2014, 2015. But um, yeah, you know, prior to that, um, there was no multi-sigs or anything, no infrastructure at all, really. It was kind of everyone just rolling their own thing and uh, hoping that it works. <laughs> and uh, fiat bank accounts as well, like all of these crypto companies, and it's still kind of the case today, you know, everyone uses proxy companies and, and different ways to try and get banking access because... Yeah, I guess then it was kind of about just spot trading, right. um, getting fiat in, getting fiat out, stuff like that. Um, but yeah, you know, we started the company in Hong Kong, focused on remittances, uh, built it out to six, seven different countries, Southeast Asia for transferring money. I wrote a book on stable coins, um, raised several rounds of funding from all the different levels, angel, VC, corporate. Um, and uh, yeah, sort of eventually it led me to my current journey on, on DeFi uh, which is where I've been probably for the last two years, um, just really getting stuck into the to the ecosystem here, and uh, and this year uh, started Step Finance with uh, with a couple of friends of mine, um, who I actually uh, they were friends from way back in the day. So um, so yeah, sort of it's come full circle. But uh, I'm I'm just as excited now about the DeFi world as I was mining in my room you know, over 10 years ago. So it's a very cool time to be alive. Yeah, I mean, the whole crypto scene in general is just so fast paced, right? And so back back in what, 2010, 11, when you're mining, the back then it's super new and exciting and, you know, the money in crypto generally is pretty good. So that's always like a motivator. But yeah, like every year or every month, even something new comes along that people have been thinking about solving for a while and then someone just solves it. And alongside all of this like innovation and progress, is the hype of money, right? And that is a huge thing driving crypto forward at the moment. But like you say, underneath it all, there's just all kinds of innovation going on. There's all kinds of people just finding finding out new things to do with this this crazy technology, right? Um, I do wonder how uh, sustainable the the current growth is and how sustainable the current market prices are. But for someone like yourself, who you would say an incumbent maybe in the space, someone who's actually working and developing and, you know, interacting with the technology itself rather than just the trading of cryptocurrencies. Uh, I think that there's, there's no real fear of how long that will last. I think that's, that's, you know, the just beginning, right? Yeah. Well, you know, money as a thing is it's not taught in schools. It's um, you know, some people might say by design, but it's, it's not taught in schools. People don't know how it works. People use money every day um, and they they care about these different things in politics every day, or oh, healthcare, or education for their kids, or where they live, or you know the price of food, or whatever. Like they care about all of these things, but at the root of literally everything is money. And yet people have no idea just how does it come into 
existence? Where does it come from? Where does money come from? Imagine, you know, putting your shoes on in the morning and not knowing where shoes come from or that they're made and manufactured in a factory. It's kind of like that, right? So I think that crypto is kind of opening the eyes for a lot of people around the world about how money works, the different ways of which money might work, you know, different things which have been walled off, um, you know, to people because previously you needed a $50 million banking license to engage in any of the activities, just like in DeFi, like collateralized lending. Well, you've got to be like a Goldman Sachs to do a lot of that stuff, um, not Joe Blow on the street who's got 50 bucks to his name, you yeah. know. So yeah. I think there's um, there's just a whole new world of opportunities people are waking up to, and that's not going to stop anytime soon. It's just going to continue to accelerate as this whole crypto ecosystem eats the rest of the uh, the financial legacy fi as I would call it. <laughs> TradFi, BoomerFi. Yes, no, absolutely Boomify, agreed. TradFi, Legacy Fi. <laughs> <laughs> All of these suits. <laughs> um, yep. Yeah, I completely agree. The thing about people changing people's perspectives or letting people understand the monetary system is completely true and probably one of the best things from my personal experience of being in crypto is kind of finding out more about the financial system. But Honestly, what I think is it's doing more than anything isn't just educating people, but it's really lifting the veil about how ridiculous the financial system that we've been working with for at least the last 50 years, you know, since at least since the 70s, how ridiculous it's gotten in terms of, you know, monetary creation, random wealth creation, manipulation of markets, you know, basically everyone who knows what they're doing, which is very few, because like you say, intentionally or unintentionally, it's not taught to us at any point in our lifetime unless you choose to learn it um but these guys know how it works you know the people who traditionally for the last 50 years have made a lot of money they can manipulate it and it's just you know when you see people talk about the volatility of crypto or the manipulation of the markets the thing that makes me laugh is that this has been going on forever volatile manipulated markets have been going on forever but the only time the regular retail person can see it or benefit from it is in crypto, which is why it gets such a kind of a bad press. Um, yeah, 100%. Yeah. Yeah, yeah and I, I was going to add maybe quickly to that. Like, I think ultimately this leads us on a path um, which, th- I mean, this has always been the case since since forever, since I got into crypto, but it, it ultimately will clash with nation states. Yeah, um, Crypto will ultimately... Um, piss off governments and it, governments, their main control is the money supply. If they don't have the money supply, they have literally nothing. Um, and they, they want people on their particular patch of dirt to use their money and to, to have control over that because that's how they pay for everything. That's how they do everything. So crypto is fine to coexist when it's like 0.2% of your GDP. But when it becomes 5, 10, 15, 50% of your GDP, now you've got a problem. And it, things happen slowly until they happen fast. So I think what you'll see is that eventually there will be this clash um, and some governments will react strongly negatively towards it. They'll see it as a threat and maybe some will embrace it. You know, certainly those which have nothing to lose, I think, will embrace it. Um, I've got a lot of thoughts about, about that as well, certainly from the remittance world and, and dealing with a lot of, um, you know, developing countries that are sending and receiving money. So I think there will be some which have nothing to lose and they're like, hey, might as well welcome this this new paradigm and all this new money in the world and, hey, why don't you come to our country and do it? But people that have a lot to lose, well, they're going to kind of kick and scream and, and go down kicking and screaming. So, um, yeah, it's going to be an exciting time. We haven't hit that point yet, but, um, 
you know, it is coming. There, there will be a time when it is a significant percent of GDP and it is significantly impacting the ability for the nation state to exist. Yeah, I mean, the, what, what if you are a, you know, a developing nation or one that's under the cosh of authoritarianism or, the, you know, for example, sanctions of another country, why wouldn't you embrace a technology such as cryptocurrency? It just makes so much sense for them to be able to bring any form of power back into their own hands because, you know, globally, the incumbent powers will always, you know, they will just take whatever power the growing countries will have in order to maintain their own power. But if this new thing springs up out of nowhere, you know, from the internet in a decentralized, well, you know, supposedly decentralized manner, it's yeah, it's um, it's a no-brainer really for developing and you know trodden down nations to try and take hold of this sort of thing. Uh, it is yeah, like you say, the the nations that have kind of looking to maintain or increase their control on on financial systems that's going to be a really intense narrative over the coming you know decade or decades uh interesting to see how it goes but yeah 100%. yeah i mean this this kind of like leads me back into something DeFi is kind of thought of as fringe still because of the small percentage of gdp because of the small adoption rate and you know these this general general idea of cryptocurrency in general but DeFi is as i keep telling my friends a place that employs so many people in and also just so many talented people some of the most talented minds in the tech space are in the crypto space and you know that it helps that it's a profitable space to be working in but also it just shows like the future for DeFi is really strong uh, you obviously have been working in crypto in you know, mining, uh, building exchanges, and now DeFi. Like, do you think that DeFi is a professional space to be working in at this point? You know, is it like, is it able to absorb TradFi boomer hopefuls? Because it's like, you know, there's an actual professional future to working in DeFi. Yeah, well, you know, one thing I've always had a problem with, you know, living in Hong Kong, Hong Kong is a financial hub, you know, much like London, Singapore, New York, it's basically the, the financial hubs of the world. Um, and you, you have a lot of these banks uh, there and you have a lot of people who call themselves banker. What does that mean? It's not a verb. You can't sit there and bank for me, please. You know, it, it's not like running. Um, you know, it's not something which you can do. So what does the word banker mean? Well, it kind of means that you're someone who sits behind a desk there and then like banks do a bunch of things, but a lot of that is redundant. You know, you have a lot of people that are sort of moving, shuffling paper and words around for no real economic or, or benefit at all. Um, you know, it's often just because of some weird reason um, that the bank has, like that you have to have a, a certain uh, document uh, for a loan or something like that. And a whole 10 people have to go and process that. So I would say that DeFi is not going to absorb these people. Um, these people are going to be out of work and they're going to have to look for another type of job because DeFi is a hundred times more, uh, maybe a thousand times more efficient. You know, you, you have things like, uh, you know, Uniswap or SushiSwap or something. They are a small team of maybe 10 people, maybe 15, started off as just a couple of people uh, on the internet. And, and they do more volume than most countries' national stock exchanges. Um, or the you know they custody more assets than many of these different countries' banks that they might have in their jurisdiction. So they would do all of that without the need of having all of these humans sitting behind a desk nine to five, going home on a weekend, having a day off on a bank holiday. 
they're working 24-7, these protocols, and you yeah. don't need any of that, and, and everything is transparent. So, yeah, I don't think there is really a future for the profession of, say, banking, whatever that means. Um, I think things are going to have to adapt and people are going to have to embrace a new reality that we don't have to trust a random people, you know, in suits that sit around a table and decide what to do with your money or not. Um, you can just go to a website, everything's clear, it's on the blockchain, you can see it all, the money's there, um, and uh, and that's sort of sort of how we're going to have to adapt to things. Yeah, I, I think that's a great future. I mean, so it kind of brings you back, to, you know, the efficiency point is a really, really important one. You were saying about Bitcoin mining at the start. Bitcoin mining has recently, you know, just this weekend, come under pretty intense fire for its environmental efficiency. Um, and I've seen lots of uh, kind of documents and entire reports that propose that Bitcoin mining is more efficient or, you know, less inefficient than people think, uh, especially when compared to the banking industry and the gold mining industry. Um, I do personally have quite a few reservations about Bitcoin BTC and how, you know, as it served itself a really useful purpose leading up to now. But I do think that at a certain point with the emissions rate continuing to go down and, you know, Bitcoin continuing to really not show so much of a use case, I don't personally see uh, how it how it's like, you know, the most justifiable thing. But I do think, though, that the environmental question around cryptocurrencies and, you know, particularly Bitcoin is one that's probably going to be a narrative of the next 10 years as well. Um, do you kind of what what do you think about Bitcoin mining in general? Do you think it's an environmentally challenging, environmentally controversial thing? It's funny that this topic has come up. I mean, I wrote a blog post on this like five years ago or something when it was a, a topic there and then it just died off and now it's resurfaced again because people want something to complain about. Yeah, but fashion, I, I think, <laughs> yeah, I, the thing is um, Bitcoin mining, uh, in, environmental impact, okay, compared with what? So would you say that a respirator in a hospital is a waste of energy? Most people would say, no, it's not because it's doing something useful and it's saving people. Yeah, cool, I'd agree. Okay, what about um, burning uh, excess gas in a gas field somewhere? People would probably say, eh, that's probably like, it's, I think it's called off offluent or um, you know, gas or whatever it is when they're, when they're uh, burning you know, additional energy for the reason of they don't want to store that energy, so they just burn it off. Is this people when they burn it off from it, the, uh, the oil fields? Yeah, the oil fields, the fracking fields, and so on. Yeah, they, so, they say that yeah, the, it, this burn-off is like to like massively reduce the methane that puts gets put out and instead puts out CO two. But yeah, right, right. So you know, there's a reason. You know, people might say, "Oh, uh, that's not a that, that's not a good use of energy. You should capture or do something with it." Right. So you have a spectrum of you know a hospital that is a productive use of energy, and then you have people sort of just burning things um, because they want to as as one scale. So then you go, okay. Where does Bitcoin fit on that scale? Or where does cryptocurrency fit on that scale of useful to not useful uses of energy? And you have to go, well, what is Bitcoin doing? Bitcoin is, the, the argument which I like is that um, Bitcoin is securing a ledger which is tamper-proof. And that's never really existed in the history of the universe before. Um, you know, we, we've never really had the ability to communicate and, and write things down and share things with each other um, that is tamper-proof or immutable right? Um, yeah. immutable right so now it, it remains to be seen if, if bitcoin will remain that way i think most human inventions because there is a human element there will always be something but i think it's the best shot that we've had in a while so i would say that that is a very useful um, and productive use of energy when you compare it with 
say, the banking system who you go to Hong Kong, they all have their lights on at 9 p.m. at night when nobody's in the building. Um, that's everywhere in the world. Um, you know, all of these different banks that have offices in every country of the world, why are they doing that? Is anybody asking them why they do that? Um, you know, what about running their air conditioning uh, at, at, at on, when nobody's in there? You know, all these different things, right? There's lots of different uses of energy which you would say are unproductive. Um, but I would say that, you know, Bitcoin mining is is many magnitudes more productive than many other things in the world. Um, and for that reason, I would say that this kind of environmental stuff is kind of a, it's just a non-question really. Um, are, are there better, more efficient ways to to secure ledgers and, and do these things? Absolutely. I, I think there are many different consensus mechanisms. I don't think proof of work is, is, is the best thing ever. Um, you know, people will argue that in order to secure a network, you need to have things which are not reliant on just the network itself. They need to come from the outside world. So, for example, proof of stake relies on people having coins in the network. So it's like isolated to like the ability for you to have coins. Whereas proof of work requires like physical hardware, um, which comes from outside the system. You need to go to TSMC in Taiwan and they need to go and put silicon on a chip and give it to you and ship it to you. So anyway, there's like additional barriers there, which people say, um, you know, can help security. But I would, yeah, I would just sort of wrap up with, you know, Bitcoin is providing a productive use uh, by securing uh, information, which has never really happened before in the world. Um, and it certainly pioneered the way. Is it the best use of energy? No. Are there better uses of energy? Yes. Um, can you have ledgers which are do the same thing but in a more efficient manner? Yes. Um, should we all be using them? I don't know. Maybe. Um, so yeah, I think that's kind of where I sit on the end. No, I think I think what you said at the end about Bitcoin being the pioneer. I think for me that's the crux of it. Right? Is that the system that Bitcoin is being mined to use? You know, Bitcoin BTC is the legacy system right it's the first biggest you know the, it's the one that's that's why it's at the top of the market cap table is because it is the legacy system but as we know legacy systems get outplaced and outpaced by better higher functioning technology like you know for example bitcoin btc is slow expensive and costs a lot of you know electricity a lot of power to to run but like you said there's more DLT distributed ledger technologies coming about that are more efficient and they will be adopted in the future. Whether or not that means that the expense of BTC is yet to be seen, but yeah, there's there's no way in which there's no world in which the efficiency of the system doesn't improve and it will probably improve exponentially. Right. Um, one thing that's important is that a lot of people may not realize is that. Bitcoin itself is actually the idea, right? The Bitcoin white paper was published by Satoshi Nakamoto and the idea of Bitcoin is is more what... B, so BTC is an implementation of the idea of Bitcoin, right? And there's a few other Bitcoin implementations. I think there's three others. There's Bitcoin Cash, Bitcoin SV, and I think one more, which I forget. Uh, these are all taking the concept of Bitcoin, but slightly different and also much more efficient so yeah bitcoin btc mining it it's a tough one uh, i see it being replaced at some point but at least for the foreseeable year it's got some use um oh yeah just to verify uh, just to clarify proof of work it's in the name about why energy consumption is required right proof of work work must be done work work requires energy right so that's 
that's a, a kind of an important caveat for that. Um, so speaking of somewhat archaic, I mean, I don't want to be rude, but somewhat archaic blockchains, uh, moving on to kind of the new, the, uh, the new DeFi landscape, the new blockchains that are trying to push things forward. Um, the project you have launched, Step Finance, is on the Solana blockchain. I'd like to actually ask you to precursor, kind of give an Eli 5 on what the Solana blockchain is um, and kind of compare it to Ethereum if you can. Sure. So I guess where we're at with, with DeFi currently is that for the last two years, it's, well, I guess say for, for the last year and a half at least, it's been pioneered by Ethereum for sure. You know, all of the projects have been on Ethereum. They've started on Ethereum. They have a big developer space there. And, uh, you know, there's, there's a lot of things happening there. But what we've seen is that certainly the scalability of Ethereum, uh, a common theme in, in crypto land is scalability uh, and fees and cost. Um, as the Ethereum price is, has uh, gone up so much, uh, the well, scalability let's, let, let's just clarify how much it's gone up. Because when I first started properly trading DeFi back in September, August, I was paying maybe, you know, for a simple swap on Uniswap, I was paying maybe 2 or $3 max. Uh, the other day, yep. I tried to do a swap, and it was $185. And this wasn't even at the highest time. I, I saw higher GUI times and didn't bother checking the price. But you know, that's a that's a 100 times increase in less than less than five months. Absolutely, yeah, it's insane. You know, not only is the network itself congested, um, but then you have the price of the actual coin appreciating. So you know, even if the quoted GUI prices in in Ethereum go down. Well, if the actual dollar price of, of those coins go up, it's still not really a viable proposition for anybody new coming in. Like you can imagine, you know, I think both of us have have friends or, or, or people that uh, are talking to us and they want to get in and, and they want to go and buy a coin maybe. They want to go and try this out. And then you tell them, oh, it's $185, by the way, uh, to do a transaction. Yeah, and maybe that won't get included. Maybe it will will fail. And, oh, and you also have to do a, a $75 approval transaction before that. Most people would go, no way. I've only got, I've got two hundred dollars. That's what it is. They're, they're trying to put two hundred dollars into a coin that might, you know, might go up. And I'm like, well, you're going to have to spend all of that first <laughs> on fees, yeah. and then and then deal with the volatility of the token you buy, anyways. Like, it's a tough sell. Exactly, exactly right. So, so these are the current problems in in DeFi and Ethereum land, and that's why we've seen, I would say, a flourishing of alternative uh, DeFi blockchains. And I would say that DeFi itself is bigger than just uh, it's bigger than just Ethereum. You know, it is a concept of decentralizing finance, and and that doesn't necessitate the use of one blockchain over another. Uh, it just means that you need to decentralize finance. So you you first saw um, the the growth of Binance Chain and, and BSC. Um, you know, because it is compatible with the Ethereum EVM implementation, a lot of projects could like basically copy paste code and, and get it set up on Binance. Now, Binance, there's questions of centralization and so on and blah, 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 but whatever. The point is that the BSC chain grew a lot, uh, attracted billions in TBL. Well, I think, um, I so think it, the growth of BSC was actually a bit of a, a bit of an eye-opener to see how much the market actually cares about true decentralization. I mean, decentralization is yeah. a bit of a meme in crypto, and it's a valid meme, and it's the one that should be the central focus of most of the operations. But I mean, BSC... Uh, literally copy pasted a testnet of Ethereum, ran out of ran ran off of twenty Binance owned servers, and you know it's cl- clearly centralized, clearly under the control of one massive company. And yeah, like you say, the growth was exponential. People didn't give a damn, and it's just kind of interesting to see. 
Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. And people people just wanted to use the products. They didn't really care about the chain. So I think, yeah, talk about eye-opening, like maybe that's one thing where the app layer is so much more valuable than the protocol layer. Um, you know, that could be one way to, to interpret that. But, you know, we saw, we saw BSC grow um, and then sort of I guess that's something that's really happened, I think, the start of this year, 2021, has been uh, the growth of Solana, which I think is a, is a much better alternative to to what's happening on on BSC and Ethereum. So Solana is uh, is another blockchain. Uh, it's been around for a couple of years, but it's only really hitting its stride recently. Um, it's had uh, some of the some some prominent backers, I guess you would call them, uh, with uh, with Alameda and FTX, looking to essentially decentralize the stuff which they're currently you know they run a, a centralized exchange, FTX.com, mm-hmm. and you know Sam has said before like that could just be on a blockchain. Like there's no reason that it needs to exist all this overhead and as someone who's built six exchanges i can tell you that there is a massive overhead for running a centralized exchange it is really annoying and uh yeah it is just tough to manage and and when you're in the DeFi world like you can you can outsource all of that to the actual blockchain and the blockchain is your back end and you just build a pretty front end you know a, a thing for people to interact with so um so yeah you know solana's come up a lot this year there's been several hackathons um tbl is increasing it's over a couple of billion now i think and uh, you know, from from our perspective at Step, we we actually started with a a, a DCA project on Ethereum. Uh, you know, DCA dollar cost averaging, a place where you can put money in, and then it will go and buy a coin for you at some set schedule. Right? Pretty simple. But that's the concept that we came up with last year, where it was like, hey, this is probably missing in the DeFi world. Can we do this? The the problem is that yeah, sure you can do it, but back then, you know, uh, Ethereum at fifteen hundred, um, the price with only six users was gonna be $180 per transaction. Whoa. That was at 50 GUI. So like, you know, have F at 4,000 and GUI at 300, you can see that it's completely unviable. You know, we, we tried side chains as well. We tried uh, Matic, now Polygon and, and XDAI. They didn't have any liquidity for the coins which we wanted, so we'd still have to make the trip across to Ethereum. So essentially we, we, we were looking around, we're like, hey, Solana has all of these coins that are on Ethereum in their wrapped versions, there's tons of liquidity. There's a DEX. Um, you know, the, the market maker is Alameda, the biggest fund in the world for crypto. Um, why don't we build our project there? So we got into the hackathon. We, we built it out. Uh, you know, it was a great, um, you know, first step, I guess, for us back then. First um, step. But what we, <laughs> yep, uh, puns intended. Um, and uh, yeah, you know, we, if, we eventually thought that, you know what, just being like a DCA platform, we're kind of like just another project out there that's like, hey, use my product, it's cool. Um, because then you only appeal for people that are looking for that specific thing. So sure. we, we thought, you know what, actually what Solana needs is, is this one place that brings together all of the projects in one central dashboard. You can manage your portfolio, you can execute transactions across different products, you can do a bunch of stuff, but it's all in one place. That gets a lot more eyes on. And actually, we we love the idea of being that place that people use every day. So like the coin geckos of the world, people use their MetaMask every day. You know, these are the kind of products which I think are highly valuable. And that's the space that we want to be in. So so that's what Step Finance is all about. Portfolio manager, transaction aggregator for Solana, bring everything together in one place. And uh, yeah, that's currently where we're at with things and the journey that got there. Yeah, awesome. Um, will we see the DCA uh, trader on Step? At some stage, yeah, we still have the contract. Like it's sitting there. We made it for that hackathon. Like it works. Um, it's just that uh, we're going to do a couple of other things before we get to the different sort of investment contracts where people can go and put their money in, and we have essential 
custody of the funds and so on. So at the moment, we're just kind of keeping it light touch to get coverage of the ecosystem. But yeah, we're slowly moving towards, there will be vaults, there will be things like the DCA. Oh, fantastic. And uh, yeah, it's going to be awesome. Yeah, awesome. I mean, DCA is something that I personally am not particularly well versed in because I'm an ape, but a lot of my friends will always use DCA. You know, they will always tell me, you should be doing this, you should be doing this. So I think certainly it's a hugely, hugely popular uh, sort of feature. Um, like we said yeah. about... Uh, pretty front ends built on the back end of the blockchain step finance is actually a very very pretty front end it, it seems to be actually all of solana is made by people who know how to make a pretty front end everything just looks very sleek uh it's i mean the solana blockchain itself is incredibly quick like lightning quick super low transaction fees um it's actually just a, like you said there's a pretty small community of very focused builders on solana and i think that it's important to make the distinction though that this is probably because it requires an entirely separate uh, coding language, and it's called Rust. Whereas on Ethereum and Ethereum sidechains such as BSC or L2, such as Polygonmatic, uh, XDAI, you can use Solidity, which is the Ethereum coding language, um, and they are all compatible with each other. As you said, EVM compatible. Um, so it's just quite it's quite an interesting thing to see because. Obviously, the DeFi system, you know, the DeFi system is set up in Solidity, right? The majority of people who are very talented are talented in Solidity. So, for me, that was always a concern about Solana: was are people going to make that, you know, make that hop over to to, to coding in Rust and in order to to function on the Solana blockchain? Um, when you were doing kind of forming your team, was that something a barrier that you came up against? Yeah, so I think Rust is uh, it's a good filter for quality. So what you've seen on, on the Solidity things is certainly with BSC, you had just a bunch of copy pastes that were food farms and people were like, well, I guess we're the first to make a food farm on this chain. Boom, we're going to make one. And then they disappear a couple of weeks later when the APYs drop and, and the token disappears. So um, I, I think on Solana, you actually have to put some thought into it. And because there is this barrier to entry, you don't get people that are just like copy pasting. Um, it, the latest hackathon that's currently underway at the time of uh, us doing this call is uh, it's got ten thousand builders, ten thousand people signed up um, wow. that are that are building on it. So so that there is you know there there is this latent um, sort of Rust ecosystem that's growing. It's still very small, but Rust as a language I think is uh, is certainly like Rust is not blockchain specific. By the way, you know Solidity is. Um, so so Rust is a little bit bigger than just Solana. So that's one core thing. And secondly, people that come from C you know one of the most used programming yeah. languages in the world. Rust is sort of the evolution of that. So, oh. so our our team, yeah, our our, our co-founder um, Aaron Zero V, uh, he's like fifteen years C plus plus programmer. So, um, yeah, he's he's a god in that. And uh, when he when he came to Solana, the transition was was yeah, there is a transition there, but uh, it was it was easy to pick up. So, I think you know if people are talented in C plus plus, then they fit in you know very well to the Solana ecosystem. And I know a lot of the recruiters out there. Uh, recruiting for all of these teams, and we are engaging a, a, a recruiter, and um, yeah, they're they're looking to source C plus plus talent. Um, so that that is a very deep, you know, pool of people around the world. For sure, um, yeah, so, that's uh, that's yeah. something I had never even uh, never known. And that's, I mean, okay, so look, no fan financial advice, but there's in a large amount of um, incredibly bullish cases for Solana. And for me, the one thing that I think is super bullish about Solana is just how CFI. TradFi, Boomer facing the entire project is. So FTX, as you said, is owned by Sam Alameda or the Alameda research team. Um, 
and uh, sorry, mispronounced his name. Um, and that is directly in the faces of of the TradFi boomers. You know, they have they have the um, is it the Austin Stadium? Is it Austin? Uh, I think it's Miami. Miami. Oh, okay. Sure. Yeah. So they had the Miami Stadium, which is now the FTX Stadium. Uh, Sam has yeah. been on Forbes 30 Under 30. He's all, all, all over the, the news in America. Um, and, and so, you know, I think that there's a huge appeal to the TradFi Boomers situation. And, of course, C++ people, not calling C++'s suits, but there is a larger, certainly, you know, the generation above or two generations above who have been skilled in C++. So that's really interesting that there's that kind of... Um, that really probably beneficial to Solana onboarding system for new Rust developers. Yeah, and and just quickly, like um, Solana itself, the compiler itself can compile C++ as well. So like you can literally build stuff in C++. The problem is that uh, there's not much documentation. Uh, so so that's, that's the kind of thing, right? So um, most people just start with Rust and, and just go from there anyway because uh, that's where all the documentation is. But technically, like, we initially set out trying to build stuff on, on C++ on Solana, so it is possible. It just needs a little bit more docs. Interesting. That is really interesting, that C++ thing, because I always just assumed that that was probably uh, a barrier for Solana. But as you say, it's compilable, compatible with C++ engineers. That could change my mind completely. Um, interesting. So you formed your team. You've come up with the idea of step. What's the next step? <laughs> Forget the pun. What, what, what's the next step <laughs> for Step Finance? You've got the team, you've got everything ready, you've built the platform. So you're then going to, like you say, you want to make a daily use project, project such as CoinGecko, MetaMask. Those two, however, do not have a token. Step Finance does have a token, the Step token. So how do you lead up to that launch? Yeah. Yeah, so we have kind of a manifesto, I guess you'd call it, of sorts um, that kind of consists between the uh, the docs.step.finance with our tokenomics there and also some some tweet threads from myself. But the, the, the long and the short of it is that if you want to be that place that attracts attention, you've got to be able to build a moat. Um, you've got to be able to build useful things which people want to use and potentially pay for. Um, you know, the, the saying goes, if everything is free, then you're the product. Um, so I think, you know, what we want to do is on step, you know, it starts off being this place where, okay, we can visualize what's happening on the Solana ecosystem, right? A bunch of integrations, portfolio management stuff, you know, front end to do that, maybe some swaps, which we have currently. Um, but okay, that's sort of the base layer for, for what we're doing at step. The, the next sort of, sort of uh, phase that we're going into is, well, we've just launched um, the step token. Um, and the purpose of that is that's a way for people to share in the value accrual of step as a platform so if we didn't have that step would just be another thing which maybe you use maybe you don't maybe you don't care about maybe you don't pay a fee maybe it's all free something like that right mm-hmm. um, whereas if we actually have a token we have a responsibility to build sort of higher level uh, better value adding things for people so it might be transaction aggregation across multiple different pools it might be various yield farming uh, strategies, maybe auto compounding strategies. It might be bridges um, that we are running. Um, there's a lot of different things which um, which can accrue value, and it's best to accrue that value in some something that people can essentially get a share of, right? And 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 that's sort of what the token is. Is the token is kind of a way for people to uh, invest in the future development of steps. So uh, at start now, we're at the base case, and then we're going to the value accrual uh, phase. 
that will start with a lot of these different things which people pay fees for. So the swap aggregation is one, kind of like a one inch. Um, one inch is really cool on Ethereum where you have all of these pools of money and uh, like they swap across all of them if you want to do like a particular, um, you want to buy a particular coin because maybe Uniswap's not the best price. Maybe SushiSwap is not. Maybe it's actually a combination of 10 things is the best price. Sure. Um, you know, so we're doing something like that, you know, for, for Solana, it's in our documents. Um, and also, like you said, the DCA, you know, that's another value add. We can charge a fee for that. Yield farming, auto compounding, that's another value add. We can charge a fee for that. Bridges, you know, we've talked to some some of the different people that are building bridges. We'd love to integrate that, probably charge a fee for that as well. So there's a lot of these different things there, which, uh, which we're going to add to step. So it's a lot more than just, you know, a dashboard to visualize stuff. It's more, it also includes a lot of these features, which to be honest, like certainly for, for many new people to the system, like they are not having 20 tabs open, like probably we are, yes. and like, <laughs> oh, switching between this thing and that thing and da-da-da and doing it all manually. People just want one place to do things and press buttons and just everything works. Um, so that's kind of what we're going for. That's the kind of market is like, look, if you want to have 20 tabs open and go to different people and like try and manage these different things, great, all power to you. But most people don't. Um, so, so step kind of fits in that role where we bring everything together in one place and people can press buttons on step, they can pay a fee, and it does productive, useful things for them. Yeah, I mean, I think that the the value proposition for step is really, really huge, but especially so because it is so early in the Solana ecosystem, like life cycle, right? There isn't that many people who are doing the things you just spoke about individually, let alone someone who's aggregating all of those services together. Um, like Solana is still early stage. I mean, relatively early stage uh so for anyone who's interested in step again no financial advice there is also a fantastic uh kind of liquidity mining operation going on on radium.io which is the uh the principal decks for uh for solana at the moment so i wonder like that was actually a huge part of the token launches hype right george was the was was the liquidity mining incentives so this is something that a lot of projects uh just a quick Eli five. A lot of projects do this, whereby you can provide liquidity in the native token and a secondary backing token, such as USDC or blah blah, uh, and then you can deposit this liquidity token, this liquidity pool token, and receive, for example, in this case, Step as a you know as a as a high APY reward for providing liquidity. Um, it's it's a bit of a staple in. Uh, in DeFi at the moment, and George, do you do you see any negatives for high APY liquidity mining at the beginning? What, what do you see as the as the reason for that? Obviously, you guys implemented it, so yeah. So I guess um, Step recently launched. It's been the largest launch on Solana to date. Uh, we had 26,000 active connections at the time of launch. We had um, you know the biggest liquidity pool up to two hundred million. It's still pretty much one of the biggest liquidity pools. I think. I think it's the um, second biggest you now. Know, yeah. on Solana. Yep. So, um, so yeah, you know, it's, uh, it, it's, it's step is central to everything that is, is happening right now in Solana. But I guess the question goes back to tokenomics models and how they work. The thing is that when a team makes a token, um, some teams, so firstly, I'll, I'll say this as well. A lot of people tried to tell us what to do on how to launch. And these, like, we've been in it, in it a while. We kind of know what we're going to do and we don't want to listen to somebody else to tell us what to do. So you had a lot of people that were like, oh, you need to launch in a specific way and you need to have these limits. And then you need to 
uh, have a whitelist. And the whitelist can be like, oh, everyone picks a random number and then the people randomly get selected. And people have all of these convoluted mechanisms, like 10 different mechanisms. Um, why? Well, they try and use this word fairness. Um, and what does fairness even mean? Limiting people and having everyone in a lottery or just joining a discord, you know, that doesn't, that, that's not fair. You know, or what if I don't get, what if I don't choose the lucky number? Well, maybe I'm, you know, willing and able to contribute to the project, but you're not going to give me any coins just because uh, I didn't choose the lucky number that was random. Like that doesn't sound very fair. Yet some people think that that creates fairness or, or what if we limit a, a put a cap on the amount that you can buy? So then you just get like 10,000 addresses from people that are trying to game the system and, okay, you can't buy everything on one address, so I'll go and make 10,000 and then I can reach the limit. So, you know, if, if your solution doesn't actually approach uh, fairness or you don't know what that means, um, then, uh, then it's not going to work. So essentially our take on fairness is the fairest system is no system. Sure. Um, you need to just have the ability to buy a coin and then that's it. If you want to buy it, great. If you don't, you don't have to. And just leave it up to the market and the market will find the price. So, you know, with, with our system, like the high APY, as you mentioned, high APYs are just a function of the price of the token, the size of the liquidity pool. Um, yeah, essentially that calculation. So nobody goes out, I guess, to to go, well, I'm targeting a 5,000% APY. Um, it it kind of happens that way. There's certainly things you can do, but our tokenomics, there was a, quite a bit more thought to it than that. You know, essentially the idea is that a couple of principles, when I design tokenomics documents, I like to start with principles first. Principles, you know, number one, early rewarders, uh, early adopters should be rewarded. You know, people that take the most risk early on, it is reasonable for them to be rewarded. So that's the first thing. I think that's a very, very Second. sound, uh, very, very sound principle. One that I think did play out pretty well in the step in the step launch, from what I could see. Yeah, hundred percent, hundred percent. And um, so, I guess another sort of section as well would be that um, we don't want to limit anyone. Um, everyone should be free to transact however much they want. And you can buy twenty dollars. You can buy two million dollars if you want. It's up to you, and the price will be according to whatever you want to want to pay. Um, so just leave it up to the market. Um, I guess some other principles are that you you want to start with a bang. And if you sort of start with a whimper, it's very hard for you to gain traction later on. Mm -hmm. If you start with a bang, you you get a lot of eyes on the project, a lot of interest, and then you can build on that for later uh, for later growth. So you start with with a lot of interest and with a bang, with a high APY, uh, with um, you know a, a free market where anyone can go and buy the coin. And let's say the price um, goes down over time uh, because there's a lot of new inflation, there's a lot of new coins that are coming into the system. So it's, it makes sense that the price is not going to stay high forever. Um, things don't always go up. Sometimes things go down. Um, but you want to have that momentum uh, for powering your medium-term growth. And your medium-term growth is kind of like, you know, if, if we say early growth is maybe one to three months, I would say medium term is like, say, three to nine months or three to 12 months in. Sure. Um, you know, that's where you are past the initial phases of, of seeding the markets, of you know, introducing new people to the platform. And now you're just building stuff um, and you're building value accruing things. And you've got all of these people who have been involved in your project who have you know, come in the door and are interested in it. And they're all sitting there. They're, they're A, they're using Step every day. And B, they're like, oh, uh, when's this coming? When's this coming? So mm -hmm. it gives you good feedback and good interest to build the stuff you need. And, and that powers your long-term growth 12 months onwards, whereby now you have the value cruel things in place. Now you have 
um, the the different things which can add value to the step token. And now it's not just about farming it. It's about actually value accruing to the native token. Farming was just a way of distribution, um, you know, of rewarding the early early adopters. But really the long-term growth, it's about revenue and generating uh, money for the protocol from people using products and paying for those products. Yeah, and I, I think one of the one of the key things about your launch was that, you, like you said, you wanted to start with a bang and then and then move on with that kind of momentum. But for something like Step, which really is supposed to be a mass adopted, you know, if everyone uses it, then it functions incredibly well. Uh, that's kind of essential for for the you know the value proposition of Step as a token is everyone knows about it, so everyone uses it, so there's lots of value accrual to the Step token. So it's a, it's a pretty what harmonious kind of thing. Um, one thing you did say, you know, about about the, the lots of eyes on a launch. Personally, I was, you know, I was uh, aware of the launch and I was kind of, you know, somewhat involved in it. But I have never, I've never seen so many butt hurt people. Can I use the word butt hurt? I've never seen so many butt hurt people who I don't know. Say they they bought at the wrong time. They didn't commit enough to liquidity. They didn't gain what they wanted, or I don't know. I don't know what their their problem was. Was but everything was very clear and open on the step launch. Like I I wasn't left wanting information. I felt there was no deviances about. But there was a lot of very strong uh, kind of people. People were worried about the basically the, the FDV, the fully diluted valuation. I think that's something that people were getting hung up on, and it's something that people are getting hung up on a lot on the Solana ecosystem. The FDV is a quick Eli Five is uh, the fully diluted valuation, which means that the total market cap, if all of the circulating supply of a token is circulating, for example, step a beginning was a very maybe one million or two million circulating supply, and has slowly increased as the emissions go up. Uh, Solana is a very new ecosystem, so many projects are looking for the long term, and so therefore have large supplies, large holdings of tokens that are not released. So I think this FDV argument was a um, was a bit of a, a naff one. Uh, what do you think fueled the kind of that kind of butthurt behavior, if I can use that word? Uh, I think it's people that have never used DeFi before that didn't understand the mechanics of how things work. I mean, you know, a lot of people. Uh, I wrote a blog post on this called "The Five Stages of Entitlement," um, <laughs> and it was a lot of it was you know uh, why can't uh, why didn't I get to buy first at the first launch? Oh, somebody else did. Well, that's not fair uh, because somebody else did, not me. So it's kind of it comes back to three people: me, myself, and I. That's what I write in that blog post, and, <laughs> and that is not that is not the way to run things. Um, you know, it is open. If you if somebody beats you to the punch of, of buying at the best price, well, maybe you should have been quicker. You know, that's that's our philosophy on things. You know, we have a very clear philosophy at Step about these things, and and a lot of projects like they try and micromanage the price and. You know, they try and micromanage things. It's not our job to micromanage price. We're developing a platform. If people are micromanaging price, it means that they have no confidence in what they're building. Sure. So another thing that I would I would say is like if if you're if you're hung up on people, uh, you know, selling your coin, and some projects are they put limits or you can't buy or sell it or do whatever. It's like, well, maybe a project's not too good anyway. If you're so scared of people selling it, why don't you just focus on building the best thing ever? And if you build the best thing ever, the price will follow that and the price will be reflective of that. So, yeah, I, I would say that, look, FDVs is another thing that, well, we didn't set the FDV. The market set the FDV. If you don't like the price of something, don't buy it. Like mm -hmm. if you think the, the FDV is too high, don't buy it. 
Um, it, we have the ability to short the token as well on FTX. If you if you are so inclined to think that it's uh, it's not a good deal, well, put your money where your mouth is. You can go and short it, and you can see how that turns out. Maybe you make some money. Um, so so yeah, you know, uh, fundamentally, it's we don't really care about these supposed arguments of FTV because. You know, that is, you know, A, there's lots of other projects out there. Serum has a 50 billion FDV. Yeah. Um, if you don't like Serum, then you shouldn't use it. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's kind of a nonsensical argument, I think. And, uh, yeah, it, it comes back to my blog post of the five stages of entitlement. But, um, yeah, it's uh, very happy with the launch. Uh, I think it went really well. Um, we've, we've received a lot of good feedback from everyone. And, yeah, I mean, I think it kind of set the precedent for how things work. On, on Solana and you've seen other launches that have tried to micromanage things and they've kind of just sort of flopped um, since, you know, they've, they, they never sort of achieved the, um, the, the, the stuff which Step has. So uh, it, things will change and Solana will continue to grow, but we're very happy with, with how things went in the launch. Yeah, for me personally, it was one of the most successful launches I've been involved in. Um, you know, like you said about the micromanaging or just in any kind of complex system in the name of fairness, uh, a lot of what actually happens is you you present these barriers to entry that a lot of the regular people who would have in otherwise tried to invest don't really feel comfortable interacting with, you know, like whitelisting or, you know, these just basically any kind of extra steps in the name of fairness does in many ways actually make it less fair. Um, so I do agree with you that maybe just the most vanilla launch it people can buy is probably just the fairest way to deal with it. Um, yeah, it, it, was, it was Confucius that said the big, inequality is to try and make unequal things equal because essentially you have to take a hammer to some people and you have to say no you can't do that and you have to hammer them down you have to limit them you have to stop them doing things stop their freedom of the ability to transact or or to do whatever they want and uh, yeah that's fundamentally that is a fundamental unfair if you need to hammer people down well that doesn't sound very fair is the uh, confucius quote in your blog post i hope it is it is. It is. It, it yes. is. Okay, good. I'll uh, I'll post a link to that underneath the episode. Um, so most of the most of the hype and most of really the conversation that I was a part of or, and I saw for Step was largely uh, I saw a few articles, but was largely on Twitter, right? And this is actually a huge point, especially for anyone who's thinking of finding out more about DeFi and wants to know, you know, where on earth to find any and all of this information. Is I would say probably currently the best place to go would be to find the correct people to follow on Twitter and to just like scroll through the timeline occasionally. Um, This is kind of an important point though, is when huge, like entire markets are dictated by certain tweets, like for example, the market fell, what, 40%, Ethereum fell like nearly 40% yesterday based on a series of FUD and, you know, some of them legislative and some of them were just tweets from, you know, Elon Musk, for example. Um, How does... You know, does the DeFi media landscape need to change in order for it to become much more mass adopted? You know, does it have to, I don't want to say the word mature because it doesn't feel like it's immature, but do you, do you understand what I'm trying to say? Whereby, you know, there is yeah. the, like for Forbes or trading investing or whatever, there's so many you know, regular circulars that go around and you hear on the roundups in the news, you know, the Google stocks are up two points today and, you know, the dollar versus the pound is, you know, this kind of thing. There's that's an established formal media landscape for these things. Is that something that DeFi needs? That's a good question. I don't think it is. And I think the media is going to have to adjust to how things work. Because fundamentally, you know, that works when you have companies, existing structures, uh, nine to five business workdays, 
you know, these sorts of things in place. And that doesn't exist in DeFi. Like you can have some random thing launched that's made by an anonymous team in Vladivostok or, you know, Namibia. Like it doesn't matter where it is in the world. It can just appear on the internet and uh, then it just starts and, and it does stuff. So there is no sort of format that I guess you can try and fit a lot of these things in. I guess the the information though and sort of the discussion on DeFi perhaps uh, can be improved. So I guess if, if DeFi itself can't be controlled or contained, then I guess maybe the discussion can be uh, in in a way that makes sense to people from the outside world. So at the moment you have a bunch of uh, yeah, just like random frogs on Twitter that are right. doing things. And, like and really just random super meme, everything super meme. Like it's it, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, everything is super meme um, and there's kind of like a clique of people that understand what they're talking about. Like if you showed people some of the memes from outside that have no idea what they're, what they're trying to get at. Um, so there is maybe some assumed knowledge. Uh, I, I do think that uh, the media probably needs to do a better job of being of wanting to engage with anonymous teams and anonymous sources. I get the whole idea of the media and, uh, you know, one of the core tenets of it is that, well, if you take, if you start taking quotes from anonymous sources, then you know, anybody can make up anything, right? And then that kind of reduces the quality of journalism. I guess the difference is perhaps that an anonymous uh, team member is actually a real uh, entity. It's, you might not know their name, but if their name is froglord123, then, then that is the one which is uh, making a comment and they have a history behind them. They have uh, uh, existing posts, they have existing reputation, they have maybe tens of thousands of followers. So just because you don't know their actual name in, in the real world, I don't think that matters because if if I told a media my name was, was Joe Bloggs, does that really change the veracity of my argument? Well, really it comes down to uh, the reputational risk for me as Joe Bloggs. Um, so if Froglord123, if they say something dumb or incorrect, well, you know, they have the reputational risk themselves. So, yeah, media could probably focus on, um, yeah, taking, uh, well, a lot of these anonymous teams, that's just how things are done. And, and if, you, if you're not engaging with them, you're not reporting the news. So if you want to report the news, you need to engage. And, uh, yeah, I, I think that's probably a good way to think about it. That's very interesting. Yeah, it's maybe not just a choice that DeFi needs to make in terms of formalizing, but also it's a choice that you know the, the regular journalism needs to make in in adapting themselves. Uh, it does kind of you know it does kind of lead me to think that you know anonymous teams, anonymous profiles, they can say truth, they can say lies. Look, the journalistic landscape at the moment especially in terms of like factual reporting in terms of politics and finance is so bereft of truth anyways that i can't imagine that you know quoting a few anonymous figures would do anything to the quality <laughs> to the quality of the truth in the reporting <laughs> do you know what i mean like at a certain point when you've got no face there you can actually be a bit more straight up with your words and at the moment journalistic landscape does tend to less be about discourse and ideas and more about identity and yeah, if you have an anonymous identity, then that solves a lot of problems because you could be, you know, you could be a black person, a brown person, a white person, a man, a woman, you know, someone from anywhere over the world. And your opinion is actually just your opinion because no one knows who Frogman or Froglord123 is. So it's not like, oh, he said this from this angle. It's like, no, he said this because this is his ideas. Um, and I think that's actually a really powerful thing that a lot of media isn't really picking up on is that identity politics 
do get removed largely when it comes from from teams such as these, uh, which I think is super interesting. Now, yeah. I've got to leave very shortly, but I want to ask you, because it's something I've spoken to you about before, and I think it's super fun. Uh, so who is Suju, <laughs> and why is this a Jupa cycle? <laughs> uh, Su is a, um, he is a co-founder of Three Arrows Capital in Singapore, and he coined the, the term uh, Jupa cycle. Uh, so <laughs> it's... Um, Essentially, it's a super cycle, um, and it means that it, we could be entering a period in crypto where, uh, because of the incessant money printing, the incompetence of governments all over the world, they're not run by intelligent people, these governments. They're run by probably very unintelligent people in almost all circumstances. So you're probably going to get a proliferation of bad decisions, and this is going to mean that you know people that want to preserve their wealth or... Uh, you know, in, invest in things or get involved in the money markets without having to be reliant on on their local fiat currency, um, they're probably going to increase their exposure to crypto, which is just going to drive this trend of, of crypto growing in market cap, growing in market share, more people using it, more users, and just continuously growing. Um, so I, I do get that argument. It comes kind of back to where we started uh, the episode a bit full circle, whereby, um, you know, there could be a point where, you get to 20%, 30%, 40% of GDP of a country that is dependent on crypto. And then now the state can't actually tax anyone because they can't get people's money in crypto, not your keys, not your coins. They can't reach in and, and force people to do it. So, um, so yeah, you, you reach an inflection point and you have to basically uh, join them or, or, or fail. Um, So, uh, so yeah, I, I think that could be one, one way to look at the super cycle is that we could be entering a period where crypto just continues to to grow in every metric and uh, that, that'll be good for pricing and, and good for people that are involved. <laughs> yeah, totally. Good for innovation too, because of course, you know, salaries drive <laughs> drive hard work. Um, 100%. One thing that I uh, I do get concerned about somewhat is, is as the super cycle, the bull run or whatever, you know, whatever you want to say we're in, as things continue more and more people are belling up my telephone and just you know in general people are just really interested to talk about crypto i recently moved back from china to the uk and i went to the the pub for the first you know first time in over a year and i heard so many different groups of people talking about sorry i heard so many different groups of people talking about crypto like it was insane i i felt like it was the biggest top signal ever and then the Three days later, we have a huge market crash. So maybe, maybe it is the end. Who knows? But maybe it was. Yeah, maybe it was right. But the thing that does concern me is that lots of new people coming into the space. You know, asking me, yeah, I want to put two hundred pound on this, two hundred pound on that. There's a lot of volatility about. So, what is a good piece of advice for you? Can you think to give to like a a new retail investor who's thinking about getting into crypto for the first time? Yeah, I mean, what I tell people is make use of the stablecoin yield farms. You know, that that's one way to make a good, you know, really good gains. You know, we're talking like 50%, maybe 100% yield on some of these things. You put $100, wait a year, it'll be $200. Like, you're never going to get that elsewhere in the market. And, and it's it's a pretty low-risk bet. So instead of, like, trying to pick which coin or, or which random protocol is going to be best, like, you probably, I would say, just stick to some of the basic stablecoin yield farms, put money in there, get to understand how the system works, 
maybe you know try out some other stuff here and there but um but yeah if you want to invest and you're not too sure how this thing works then that that will be a low risk but uh but high reward kind of bet to make yeah and um so typically yield farming on ethereum as we spoke about is extortionate and unusable unusably expensive so a good place to start your yield farming venture would probably be step finance on solana right there you go absolutely yeah, yeah. Nice. <laughs> step there's plenty of yield farms uh radium as well we, we integrate with them on step so um yeah a lot of cool stuff a lot of opportunities nice well i've got to go so uh i'm just gonna end this call here but i really appreciate your time george uh, it was really interesting talking to you especially from someone who's got you know a lot of experience from the very beginning it's super interesting thanks so much thanks for having me it's been it's been great cheers bro cheers